Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for our guest, my name's Anton Marquez. Uh, great to have you along this morning. Hello, if you're watching online, and uh, whether you're online or in the building, if you haven't already, grab a Bible and uh, open up to the book of Esther. Feel free to use the contents page. We don't head to the book of Esther all that often, uh, so feel free to look up where it is. Uh, because we all love a good story. We all love a good story. I certainly know this. I read uh, multiple stories to my youngest daughter uh, through the day and Katie as well. Uh, and usually we think of stories as uh, a piece of entertainment, either a good novel to read on holidays or a good movie or series to watch. Uh, but stories are more than that. They, uh, they're used for communication. We often communicate to one another through stories. So when I asked the staff what their holidays were like, they told me stories, stories of the satnav taking them down the wrong uh, route and ending up on a dirt track, or stories of counting roadkill uh, on long journeys, or stories of getting injured while running in the dark. Uh, I learned about their holidays through stories. And, you know, but stories can can do more than just convey something that's happened or convey information. As we tell stories and listen to stories, we build relationship with one another. And stories can, can change you and transform you as you listen uh, to what's happening. So when I uh, asked my dad, you know, what was it like to grow up in the Philippines during the war? I hear stories of his childhood of how some of his family members were taken uh, and put in prison for a time, or how he fled to the jungle in order to avoid being caught. And as he tells me stories, uh, it brings me and him closer as I understand him more, both in what he tells but also in the way that he tells it. And maybe it might impact me more than that and change me as I reflect on myself in light of you know my childhood in, in comparison to his, or be inspired by something he went through. And so it should be no surprise that when we come to the Bible, it's not just full of rules or instructions, but story, narrative. Because the Bible was written by the inspiration of God, and because it was written uh, so that God can tell us about himself and how he relates to us, when we read a biblical story, we're asking, God, tell us your story. And so we begin our new series in the book of Esther. And as you've heard, Esther is a story. And we've read the first two chapters, which is kind of the introduction, the setup for the story. And so as we go through, and we're going to read the whole of Esther in church over the next few weeks, and uh, you're doing it in small groups as well. Uh, when we listen to God's story in the book of Esther, have this request in your mind. God, tell us your story. Well, let's turn now to the story uh, from God in the book of Esther. Uh, here are some headings uh, so that you can see where we are going. And our story begins not with God, not with his people, 
but in a setting of power and empire. So have a look at the first paragraph of the book of Esther. Because here we see, we've got the great Persian king Xerxes, ruler of almost all the ancient world, all the way from India in the east through the Kush, which is North Africa, in the west. And he rules from his royal fortress in the capital, Susa. And we read in the story that, ex, uh, that Xerxes brings all his nobles, all his officials, all his princes and military leaders together from all over the empire. They come to Susa for a six-month uh, kind of expo. Let me go to expo in Brisbane or there's one in Dubai. Um, big expo of his vast kingdom, his wealth, all, uh, all on display, all his glory and majesty. And the, the, the climax to this is a seven day banquet of luxury and indulgence. Must kind of feel like you've just gone off a cruise after that, you know, all the, all the eating. Uh, you know, it's, this was the place to be, the place to be seen at in 483 BC. Anyone who's anyone was there. And Xerxes had a purpose for this. He wanted to show off all his great wealth and power to his military officials so that they would join him in his campaign against Greece. He's going, look at my power. Surely we will be victorious together. Look at my wealth. Look how I will reward you when we're victorious. The empire is the place to be. It must be nice to have Xerxes on your side. But as we tick over to verse 10, have a look down, the story reveals a dark side to the empire. You know, on the surface, it's like a you know, fancy casino with all its glitz and glamour and uh, people serving you. But there's danger and corruption and unpredictability just beneath the surface. And it happens on the final day, day seven of the banquet. Uh, the king has shown all his wealth and prosperity to the other officials. Uh, let's, let's bring out one more trophy, shall we? To show everyone. And this trophy was the queen, who was lovely to look at, verse 11 says. But verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. The empire is a dangerous place. Get on the wrong side of the king and there are serious consequences. You know, this, at this point, Xerxes is humiliated in front of everyone. You know, he's looking to command a vast army, yet he can't even command his queen. And so as the story goes on, Vashti is banished from his presence, and an edict is sent throughout the whole empire so that women will respect their husbands. But goodness, if a husband has to demand respect from their wife, surely they are not worthy of it. The empire is a dangerous place if you refuse the king. But as we turn to the next chapter, it's not much better if you accept the king. Have a look now at chapter 2. Uh, because they are, with, with uh, Queen Vashti gone, a search for a replacement queen is proposed. 
young virgins are taken from all over the empire to be brought to the king's palace and given 12 months of beauty treatments. Goodness me. So, you know, we, we are, um, I hear this, <laughs> not from first time experience. Um, I don't think beauty treatments take quite as long these days. But, you know, we've got things like, you know, L'Oreal Paris. And the tagline for those beauty treatments is because you're worth it. Well, whatever the uh, beauty treatments were back then, uh, they are there because the king wants to test you out in bed and choose a queen. Not quite the same ring. Uh, these virgins were brought to, uh, brought to the palace to join the king's harem, get doled up for a year, and wait for their turn to spend a night with the king. Now, one lucky winner who pleases the king the most would be queen. But for all the others, they would move from the harem of the, of the virgins into, once they've had their night with the king, into the harem of the concubines. And once they're there, they'd never return to their families. They'd stay in the palace. They'd never marry because, of course, they're defiled now, not virgins anymore. They would live out their days well provided for, but detained in the harem and unlikely to see the king again. An awful situation for those young women. But this suggestion was put to King Xerxes, and in verse 4, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. And if you're thinking, oh, this is a terrible place for young women in the empire, uh, I'll just shout out to the boys. Uh, have you noticed how many eunuchs there are in the story? Uh, similarly, many boys were taken from throughout the empire and castrated like cattle and put in the king's service for life. The empire is a dangerous and evil place. We've already read it. We don't need to hear it again. <laughs> I was just... Don't you love modern Bibles on phones where you can just read it out? All good, all good. Okay, so we've heard of this dangerous empire. But remember, this is all part of God's story. We're asking God to tell us his story. So you, you get to the end of this bit of, uh, of the story so far, and it's like, God, why are you telling us about Xerxes and the empire? Well, God is painting a picture of life under the empire to help us as we live our lives today. Now, we don't have a big uh, political empire over us like back then, but we do have a cultural empire, a culture which similarly loves power and wealth and greatness. You know, walking into the Xerxes Palace for the first time, it's kind of, a, I imagine, you know, walking into the Apple Store for the first time and saying, oh, all the new, nice shiny things. Today's empire can be so alluring. Any display of wealth is so appealing. Any chance to have status or influence over someone else is so desirable. Any opportunities to affirm that you make your own choices about yourself you know, come and believe what we believe and then you can be one of us. 
But God is also saying, beneath the the all-accepting, obliging surface, today's cultural empire can be harsh and dangerous. For if you dare to speak up against the prevailing trends, you risk being cancelled. Or we're, we're encouraged to embrace the sexual freedom of the day. But then it's leading to all the sexual exploitation and abuse that is so prevalent. So friends, I think God is telling us to see the empire, see today's culture with, uh, without rose-colored glasses. If we embrace the world, we put ourselves at the mercy of the world. So God is reminding us of what life can be like outside of his kingdom can be dangerous. But as you read the story, God is also mocking the empire. Did you notice? So firstly, Xerxes displays his wealth to all the military to join him to try and conquer Greece. But some of you have seen the movie 300. And in it, Xerxes gets defeated in Greece. The first readers of the book of Esther would have known this, not from the movie, but from the actual history. And so when they read all of the splendor of Xerxes, they go, ha, he's lost most of that from his battle in Greece. And not only is Xerxes trying to present to this powerful, glorious king, look how he's portrayed in the, in the, in the story. He's constantly undermined by his, his advisors always uh, getting their way. They're the ones kind of pulling the strings. Xerxes makes very few decisions on his own, but goes with the agendas of others. And of course, of all the power and control that Xerxes is trying to, to give, to, to exercise, he can't control the will of his wife. No human power can change the human heart. And so this reminds me of God um, uh, saying something else in Psalm 2. You know, when the Lord looks at the arrogance of the kings and the rulers of the world, he says this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Yes, this empire is powerful and dangerous. But God looks down and has a little little chuckle. All the power and glory are, are a veneer, just a temporary display. The true kingdom is under God's chosen king, Jesus Christ. So let us put our trust in the Lord, not in the empire of this world. Jesus is truly in charge. So let us entrust our lives to him. And in the Apostle Paul's words, let us not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. But then... Into the story come two little 
seemingly insignificant people, Mordecai and Esther. Why don't you come back to me, uh, with me, with the, to the Bible, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, we're more than a chapter in to uh, the story, but finally we get a mention of one of God's people. Uh, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, uh, the son of Kish. Uh, Kish was the father of King Saul. Remember King Saul back in, um, in the Old Testament? Uh, so he, Mordecai was a relative of a former Israel king. Uh, hold that on for a couple of weeks' time. Let's get going. Verse 6. Uh, Mordecai had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. All right, so we've got one of God's covenant people, Mordecai. But remember that uh, God's people, they were in Jerusalem. If you remember our three things, uh, land in Jerusalem and, and surrounds, uh, the nation and God's blessing. They all had that in Jerusalem in the green bit. But because of their sin, they were deported, they were exiled by the Babylonians into Babylon, which then became Persia when the Persians took over. And uh, some of them went back to the promised land, uh, but Mordecai hadn't. So in the, so he wasn't in the land of God's people. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, the nation, he was, he was one of God's people, one of God's nation, but they, have, they were now split throughout the empire. And will God be blessing him and the people around them? Well, let's wait and see. Uh, so Mordecai was just one of many living outside God's place. And apart from a vaguely interesting family, family tree, uh, he was a nobody, especially compared to Xerxes. And then character number two, Esther, even less significant. Verse seven, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother, even uh, less, you know, an orphan, less powerful. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Sounds good, but it didn't do Queen Vashti any good. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. So here we have Esther, another one of God's covenant people, also living in exile, an orphan, a young woman. And so here we are, we've got two little ones living in the vast, glorious empire. And I don't know, maybe you feel like a little one too in this world. You know, if we're one of God's people, we're a small group of people in, in a, you know, with a faith in a seemingly diminishing religion. None of us have great positions of power or influence in our culture. We're just little ones. And yet here in this story, God uses Esther and Mordecai to change the course of history, to fulfill the plans of God. And we see God positioning them in just the right way. So firstly, out of all the young virgins, which Xerxes uh, road tested, Esther is chosen to be queen. 
And uh, Xerxes' choice of Esther ends up saving his life. Have a look down at the end. Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. There's so much in that paragraph, which I'm not going to spoil for later on. So much is referenced later on. Uh, But realize that if, uh, if Mordecai just wasn't there at the king's gate that day, then he wouldn't have overheard the assassination plot. And if Esther wasn't queen, then Mordecai wouldn't have had anyone to tell the plot to. But because Esther was right there, had been chosen out of all the other virgins, then she was there ready to hear about the plot, and then she could tell the king, who could thwart it. It was all written down in the king's history. This is just one of the many coincidences throughout the story of Esther. They're all through the book, which will lead us to this question, how can these two little ones be so significant? How can these little ones have such an impact over this vast empire? Well, the answer must be that they come. This happens because this is God's story. God is trying to tell us something here. And so we're again, we're invited to, uh, we're inviting God to tell us his story. What is God communicating here? Well, as, uh, when we read a, um, Bible story like this, our first reaction is to be drawn to the characters like Vashti or Mordecai or Esther and think, is there something to copy? Is God trying to give us an example to follow? You know, is Vashti a golden example of standing up to the powers that be, to to sexual exploitation? Or did she just have a bit of a hangover and just didn't want to get out of bed when she was summoned? Was Mordecai wise in telling Esther, no, don't reveal your identity as one of God's people? Or was he being a coward and protective? And surely Esther, surely she's going against the law by going along with all this. With her, with you know, all the obsession over beauty, sex before marriage, marrying a pagan man, and going against all the food laws, you know, was this was this her chance that she could see as an orphan to make it big? So she tried to play the game well, or was she forced into it and had little choice but to go along with it? Well, when we read the text closely, we see that. We're not given answer to any of those things. There's no evaluation of Mordecai or Vashti or Esther's actions. We don't get any insight into their heart or their feelings or their motives. We only see their actions. And the, the narrator doesn't give little, little comments to guide us. There's no indication of whether their actions are right or wrong in God's sight. We see all through their lives are full of moral ambiguity. But that's our life too, isn't it? As we strive to obey the Lord, 
But because their actions, they're not evaluated in any way, I think God is saying, no, don't, this story is not about looking at them at this point and seeing that they're examples to follow. You know, this is no Aesop's fable, no ethics class here. Now, God is telling us something different. He's telling us that even with all the power and impressiveness of the empire, God uses little ones to achieve his purpose. Little ones like you and me. Even when there's moral ambiguity over their actions, God still uses the little ones to to play out his plans. In these early chapters, God puts Esther and Mordecai there for such a time as this to thwart an assassination attempt. And so even in this enticing and dangerous empire, even though the characters are morally ambiguous at best, God is willing to work through them for his glorious purposes. And so, my friends, this is a word of comfort today. You know, maybe you're feeling the weight of the cultural empire over us. You're feeling more and more on the margins. Or maybe you look at Esther and you go, oh, that's, you know, that's how I feel. Kind of, you know, you strive to be faithful to God, but you don't always know with your day-to-day decisions in this modern world whether that's the right thing to do or not. There are other times you're just downright disobedient to God. Well, God in this story is telling us that he's willing to work out his perfect plan through people like Esther and Mordecai and you. God will work through our imperfect actions and decisions. God will work even in the midst of this cultural empire so that people will keep coming to know Jesus, be strengthened in faith and persevering until God's ultimate kingdom comes. And we have this assurance later in the Bible because God works through the little ones, including one particular little one who was a regular carpenter's son from a one-horse town. But he was a son of God. And he was never morally ambiguous. He was faithful to God in every decision. And through his obedient, sacrificial death, all our moral ambiguity is forgiven. All our wrong decisions are forgiven. All our defiance of God is forgiven when we turn to Jesus. And in that we let his kingdom come into our lives as we anticipate the kingdom coming when God's glory will be revealed at Jesus' return. And so for now, may we have eyes to see how God is working through us for the glory of his kingdom this week. Well, why doesn't the band come up so we can stand and sing and remind each other more of living for God's kingdom? Let's stand.